0: Welcome to the Brentwood Academy podcast. We are a co-educational, independent, college preparatory school near Nashville, Tennessee. Our mission is to nurture and challenge each whole person, body, mind, and spirit to the glory of God. This podcast will give you a glimpse into the stories, lives, and relationships that make BA such a special place. For more information about BA, visit BrentwoodAcademy.com. Now on to today's episode. Hello, and welcome back to the Brentwood Academy podcast. I'm Matt Brown, your host for today. And we have an incredible story for you today, an incredible privilege to have our headmaster, Kurt Masters, here today to to talk. uh, Hopefully, this is going to be a a two-part series series here. Uh, Just getting to know the man, the myth, the legend here, (laughs) Kurt Masters, who... uh, (laughs) To hear where he came from and the lessons he has learned throughout his, his childhood and, and his career here. So yeah, we want to welcome Kurt Masters to the podcast. Let's talk about your uh, your time as as headmaster. This is this is not a this is not a cushy job that that as I've seen mm-hmm. over the last eight years of being here. Uh, you have a lot of a lot of there's a lot of ups and downs with this position. How did you get here, and why have you stayed? (laughs) Well,
1: thank you. I've been here for 18 years now in the fall of my 19th year. Of course, the great history of Brentwood Academy is that Bill Brown, the founding headmaster, was here for 31 years before me. So, of course, that makes me the new kid on the block still (laughs) after 18 years. But when we came, we were looking at the school not only as a potential place for me to work, but also we were looking at the school as prospective parents. I had one daughter that was graduating from high school, but two more children that were going to be coming here if we moved up to Brentwood, Tennessee. And they came as students. We heard about the mission of the school, which was so focused on – The worth of each person, the way God made us to have value in ourselves, not just in our performance or our status, but eternal worth as a person. And that really resonated with us as parents, of course. And then to see that lived out in our own family's life, as well as in the mission and ministry of Brentwood Academy, has been really fulfilling. The idea of nurturing and challenging each whole person, body, mind, and spirit, to the glory of God— has such a potential for applying not just to young people, to students, but also to us as employees and, of course, to the parent community as well, to each individual. The idea that God's built us to grow and to continue growing, not just physically and intellectually, but spiritually as well, in relationship with God and in relationship with each other. That's
0: that's great. and uh, and And knowing... <laughs> It's hard knowing, knowing your kids and having met all of them and working with two of them now. Uh, well, I don't, I don't know what impact BA had on them versus what you had on them and how that, how that works together, but you guys have an amazing family, and, uh, and we're really thankful Thank to have you here. Uh, so let's, let's shift gears. Let's go way back. Um, growing up in a missionary family, uh, you have this this story that I, I know you say it was, it was ordinary to you, but extraordinary to all of us who hear it. So mm. tell us about that, how you ended up, where you ended up.
1: Well, my parents felt called to the mission field when they were in Bible school. Uh, they went to Prairie Bible Institute up in Three Hills, Alberta, Canada. They had graduated from college, felt that God was calling them to some sort of ministry, and went as a married couple up to Bible school. I was born up there while they were in school, and while they were there, they heard a man come and speak about going to places where they had never heard the message of the gospel, where they'd never heard about Jesus Christ and the hope that they could have for eternity uh, through a saving relationship with Jesus. And so uh, they joined a mission organization called Regions Beyond Missionary Union, some of you listeners and and some folks remember the old hymn to the regions beyond i must go i must go where the story has never been told and they felt compelled by god to offer their lives in service to that that thought that god equips people to carry the message to those who've not heard and how will they hear unless someone goes this that great biblical perspective and so they took on the task of raising support, uh, getting some training, and then heading out to the mission field by ship up to, uh, through Seattle to Australia, and then by DC-3 into the coast of Dutch New Guinea, the big island above Australia, and then by single-engine mission plane up into the mountains where other missionaries had built an airstrip. They began to learn the language there, And serve at an established mission station. And then the mission was continuing to develop new outposts. And my father went in with another missionary to build an airstrip in a place that was very remote, where no outsider had been that we know of. And so from the air, they could see five villages in this great bowl-shaped valley. So they walked in uh, a seven-day journey by foot. Took about 15 minutes by single-engine airplane. Goodness. But walked into this area, didn't know the language or have anyone with them that that knew that language. And so, of course, basic elements of demonstrating that you are friendly and not coming uh, with uh, opposition in mind or a takeover, offering gifts, trying to learn the language, and then trying to negotiate for land to build an airstrip okay. and to build your house, and then eventually to have. The family come in once the airstrip was built, and so
0: because you said the the people, I've heard you say the people had the same word for stranger as enemy. Correct? Right? Right. Is that yeah? Right? So <laughs> an outsider
1: to places where, especially primitive places where they're warlike, they were cannibals by tradition, uh, very territorial. Uh, the outside was a threat, and so trying to bridge that with. Gifts and with uh, demonstrations of coming in peace was part of the part of the challenge.
0: Wow! So within that, and and uh, and I should I should go ahead and so I don't forget uh, th- this story is written out in, in in detail on the website, and and so from for whatever else, uh, if there are other details that you want to catch from this, uh, I would check out the website. Uh, Mr. Master's bio on the website is uh, is is. Very compelling reading, to say the least. I just I just read that before I came up here. But
1: well, thank you. There are a couple books that have been written about the extended story of my father and and his mm-hmm. death, as we may touch on later, uh, to perish for their their mm-hmm. saving by Helen Manning, mm-hmm. and then Lords of the Earth by Don Richardson share well. some of those stories.
0: Yeah, it it, it definitely it def- from what I've read, it definitely fits in the realm of those other stories that we hear of the Jim Elliots and and mm-hmm. you know the missionaries that have gone mm-hmm. all over the world in service of the of the gospel. Uh let's talk a little bit about about the dangers. Um I know I know we, we have your father's story um to tell but but just in the in the daily life, uh what was the daily life like there?
1: You know, growing up overseas in a primitive area, it was a lot like Swiss Family Robinson. Mm-hmm. We had a house that my father built. The people there were were very primitive. They were still Stone Age folks, which means they hadn't developed the use of metal yet. And so in terms of actually having the luxuries we enjoy here, uh, none of that was available. So when you got up in the morning, if you started a fire, you had warmth. Mm-hmm. You know, if you wanted hot water for a shower, you had to warm up the water yourself. There were no water heaters or electricity. Uh, some of the luxuries we take for granted. But if we think back hundred years or 200 years to a time when those things we think of as civilization weren't a normal part of the experience that was how I grew up so my dad had running water put into our house not by calling a plumber but because he went uphill from our house and fenced off an area where a spring came out of the ground and built a little dam there and put some uh, hosing down to the house downhill and had a Fifty-five gallon drum outside the house up on stilts, so that it could fill the drum, and then that would come down through a faucet into our kitchen. Voila, running waters.
0: I know when I read the when I read the part about him having to build the airstrip by heating rocks and pouring water on them to to crack them. Right. Up, I was thinking, okay, well, it brings to mind a little bit of what Stone Age meant. You know <laughs> that that kind of technology, well, or lack
1: thereof. It is. Interesting and, and really fun to reflect on how many things can be accomplished without the luxuries of modern technology. And, of course, heating rocks up and pouring water on them <laughs> it works just like it works when you drop an ice cube in, in your glass. It right. cracks, and right. then you can chip it up more easily. But uh, there are a lot of technological complications in trying to bring the gospel to a place where There's none of the infrastructure developed, communication, uh, transportation, uh, simply the idea of translation, developing a written language where there is none. There's no dictionary, no set of uh, translating specialists available to teach you the language. And so trying to understand how to communicate forgiveness or a need for forgiveness, how to communicate salvation or eternity, how to even describe God, a God that's not just one of many spirits, but the creator of the universe, and then to try to convey the idea that God intends a personal relationship. How do you say that in such a way that it means in their language what we intend or we believe it means in our own language?
0: There are, there are so many places for me to go with this. The things that I read, the different instances of where you're, from from literally from getting off the plane, your life was in danger. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned that with your, I mean, where it, kind of an instance of of God coming through and you never would have known it. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about that. You know,
1: looking back at those uh, trips between mission stations and traveling into territory where You don't have a relationship with the people and where the people might suspect that as an outsider you have motives that don't match Mm -hmm. uh, what they want for their community. Uh, There was certainly risk. And I think back as a child, I, I didn't have any say in where my parents were going, but they knew that they were stepping out into places where the normal securities that we count on, Uh, sort of a rule of law or a common sense of what the boundaries are for how we treat each other or uh, what someone can do if they're upset or even how to fit into a community, Uh, that they're stepping into territory where that wasn't mapped out and where there weren't the certainties that we sort of assume Mm -hmm. uh, here in our country or in in places that we see as part of the civilized world. And yet they were certain that God was calling them to bring the message of the gospel to people who didn't have that hope and who'd not heard about hope in Christ. And so on a real practical level, the risk of disease or the risk of, uh, you know, just the transportation itself into rugged territory. It was before GPS, if you're flying in a single engine airplane over the mountains, uh, even when when I was in high school, there still areas of the mountains where it was blank on the map because mm-hmm. they hadn't mapped it out. Uh, so when you're flying and you get above the clouds, no GPS, you have to find a place where there aren't clouds to come down. Right. And so just flying from one mission station to another in the rapidly changing climate there— there's a risk that you could be up there and not have a place to be sure to come down without having a mountain in the way. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the reality is that the people really did fight and that they really occasionally attacked people and, and sometimes ate people. My parents took on that risk because they believed God had called them to it and therefore that God would provide opportunity mm-hmm. to build those relationships and and to develop inroads for the gospel. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that... That meant that when we went into a place as a family, my dad knew that he was bringing us into an area where there was risk for us as well. But again, trusting that God, who was calling them to that, would provide uh, the protection that was needed for that. Later on, you mentioned to hearing after the fact about getting off the plane. When we came back for a 25th memorial service for my dad in 93, The some of the men who had been there uh when we first came to join my dad after he'd built a, a sort of a rough hewn house out of poles and and uh, thatched the grass that like you'd have a thatched roof in England uh and a bark floor and a fireplace that was that he had in the house for us and and brought us in there uh we were told later that the people had decided that we weren't spirits we were outsiders and so to kill us all when we got off the plane, and because we were bringing more, or my dad was bringing his family in. And when we got off the plane, my mom was wearing a red dress, and something about that red dress prompted one of the chiefs to say, wait a second, this is a bad sign, it's a sign of blood. Spread the word, spread the word, we're not going to kill them. Of course, we didn't uh-huh. know that that happened right. at the time. It wasn't until way later that this gentleman... Who was a believer when he shared it with us uh, was prepared to kill us all at the when we got off the plane. Wow,
0: yeah, that it, it's just a, it's a fascinating story. Get, let's let's hear. I want to hear. Maybe a, a more maybe a more a more personal. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a more personal question here, but how did you feel you you say that it was normal growing up but but even being able to because that, that's all you knew but but looking back what how do you feel about your parents decision there mm-hmm. uh, to raise you in such an extraordinary environment
1: and dangerous i think two parts of that question probably one is how do i feel now about it and the other is how did i feel then mm-hmm. i felt then probably like most kids feel, I didn't have any say in the matter. Right. <laughs> I, I, was, <laughs> you're, I you're didn't want to be somewhere other than where my parents were. Right. And like I'd, uh, I've mentioned in s- several settings, everything is local to the people who are there. Everyone yeah. I knew grew up where I grew up, right. and so, or at least to a point. And so although it was definitely, in retrospect, an adventure and – and some risk, at the same time there was a certainty about having been called to do that and following God's leading to to offer something really significant. And I think perspective comes from recognizing the priorities that lead to the decisions that lead to the action steps that you take. And so for my mom and dad, their priority was doing what God had called them to do, and that led them to a certainty that while recognizing the risk they understood that god had a means to deliver a message Mm -hmm. and that they were the ones in a position to share that message of hope Mm -hmm. and so i look back on that and i see it as having been raised in an environment with the great adventure and and some phenomenal experiences i really appreciate Mm -hmm. the underpinning of godly parents who demonstrated their faith in really practical and sacrificial ways and what you might think of as a hardship I look back on and see really um, as formative in in shaping my perspective on life I'll give you a a trivial example but it's not an insignificant example when we got a Christmas package it might include a pack of Mm M&M's it did include occasionally a pack of M&M's and when we opened the pack of M&M's it would be with mom as the sergeant at arms. <laughs> three for you and three for you. Right. I had two brothers yeah. and two you, sisters, yeah. so it was three M M&M, and M, not three bags, three M and Ms for you and three for you. And we savored those M and Ms. Yeah. And I think yeah. Back, you know, now if I buy, if I buy a bag of M and Ms, has no significance to me. But three M and you know, when you're taking an M M&M and M at a time, uh, you know, there were times when. Uh, Well, you couldn't buy new shoes. If you wore your shoes out, you had to wait until something came from the States. And just so many practical areas where we valued what we had. I think back to just my grandparents as farmers, you know, when they tore uh, some lumber off a barn, they saved the nails in a tin can. Well, we did that over there, too. We couldn't go down to Ace Hardware Mm -hmm. or Home Depot and buy new nails. And so you straightened out nails and you used them again. And so there's a sense of valuing what you have and appreciating uh, every little thing. Of course, my mom and dad grew up in an era when you saved the paper bags and you saved the rubber bands and so on. Right. And I think there is a perspective about not wasting what you have that does grow out of a biblical premise, too, and that is... If you're faithful in the small things, you'll be faithful in the big. And mm-hmm. don't want to equate that too closely to M M&M and M usage, <laughs> right. but but I think there are other really important right. aspects of that. Right. That if we manage the small details, the obedience in the little things, it leads to the opportunity to obey in bigger bigger things. Right. When you think about dangers, of course, part of the problem is that you don't necessarily anticipate what will come out of some of the decisions you make my dad built our house in between the villages so that we weren't associated with one or the other and that was a great idea except the villages sometimes fought and where did they fight? In neutral territory and so right out front of our house in our yard multiple times it was a setting for people yelling at each other and upset and then all men of puberty age and above carried bows and arrows as a weapon kind of like the yeah. wild west and when you're upset at somebody you take one of the arrows out of the collection in your hand and you lay it across the bow and then you put it on the string and then you pull it back a little bit and then you point it at somebody and then the fun begins you know it yeah uh, so i've seen people shooting each other and the backing off wow. like in dodgeball and getting a safe distance and arrows launching through the air and my dad yelling get under the table get under the table because we had a thatched roof right exactly. grass roof and so the metal table in his mind was safety yes. but their dad is standing in the door watching <laughs> right like, dad <laughs> right. how fair is that yeah. but you know just humor aside the fact is that people were shooting each other and sometimes hit each other and then my dad's role was as someone who could offer medical help or try to build peace uh people of you know chiefs who are involved several times, you know, asking my dad to step aside. You don't bother us, we won't bother you. Even in practical things like how we played as kids, you know, the terrain was uh, covered with gardens where they'd fold over the tall grass and build essentially a compost pile covered with dirt, and then plant sweet potatoes, vines in that, and We would go out and jump off of rocks into Mm. the spongy Mm -hmm. piles of of, uh, sweet potato gardens. And at one point, my sister and I were jumping off of that and running around back up onto the rock. We noticed something really cool. The rock was covered with red moss, and there were skulls there, people's skulls. And we thought, oh, how cool is that? And Mm -hmm. just back up along to the jumping off. And a gentleman came down from the village and saw us and was shocked and upset. Mm -hmm. Then he told us, get out of here, get out of here, in his own language, Mm -hmm. and moved us down off the hill from there, really upset, Mm -hmm. looking around cautiously. We'd been in a place where we were not supposed to be, where uninitiated people uh, were not allowed to be, a place where Mm -hmm. uh, only adult warriors could be as a place of refuge there, a place where there was some significance that meant you were at risk of your life if you were there. And this man took us down and away from there wow. uh, at some risk to himself. And we had no idea that we were even putting ourselves in danger there. But, you know, as, as our story went on, we were welcomed in that valley, the Coropun Valley, where people began to accept the gospel, where my dad began to translate scripture. There's more. Uh, to that story about how the gospel was finally translated mm-hmm. by other missionaries after us and and uh, the way the people there received the gospel in their mm-hmm. own language, a great story in its own right. Uh, but then, of course, you know, moving on from there, when I was in seventh grade, I was 11 going on 12, uh, my dad was traveling between our mission station and Ninya, mm-hmm. that, that station seven days walk away to find another place to build an airstrip mm-hmm. where it'd be easier to share the gospel, to get there more quickly. And he and another missionary were shot and killed along with some local mm-hmm. believers. And, you know, just that wasn't something we learned immediately, but eventually some people who got away got to another mission station mm-hmm. called Anguruk nearby and a couple of days walk away and, and shared that they'd been shot. Mm-hmm. And, of course, my mom uh, was... At that time three months pregnant with my youngest brother, so uh she had been the missionary wife, you know, he was mm-hmm. the ordained minister, the pastor. Uh, but God had called us as a family, mom believed that thoroughly. You know, how do you respond in a situation like that? That's and, unreal. and how do you make sense of this? We're here to share the gospel, God's called us here, we have a purpose. Mm-hmm. And now suddenly dad's killed. And you know, where do you go with that? Right. My mom chose to stay on the mission field and really just continue to believe that God had called her mm-hmm. to to help share the gospel and continue to play a role in bringing the the good news to the people there in in Erie. Mm. Yeah,
0: It's a it's a it's an incredible story and 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 I appreciate every time you you tell that story here because it's it it's so far outside of many many people's frame of reference and yet as as I want us to get into. In the in the next episode, talking about uh, what's not different, uh, what what really what really it, it transcends culture in in the human mm-hmm. experience, and and some of the lessons that you learn. I mean, obviously we have we have families here that you know that, mm-hmm. that have lost fathers, and 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 you're uniquely positioned to be yeah. able to to minister to those those kids, and and uh, and we have all sorts of suffering, and and, and in your bio on the on the on the website i i I love what you talk about with fear Hmm. and uh and the the response the 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 natives there their response to the gospel based on fear the fear Mm -hmm. that they had not not fear of the gospel which is what how so many of us Mm -hmm. you might have come to faith fear of you know going to hell or whatever but fear of what they were currently going through Mm -hmm. that they lived in fear and 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 the gospel being good news to lead them out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I I appreciate you, you, you telling your story about your father. That that is where I wanted to end. And I and I'd like to uh, I'd like to to set this up just uh, for those of you listening. Uh, please uh, encourage you to listen to tune in for this second episode uh, where we we get to go a little bit more in depth with. Uh, what happened when you came back? Uh, twenty five years later, uh, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned it briefly in nineteen ninety three. You got to come back for a twenty five year you know, reunion there, and to mm-hmm. kind of see the long term effects of you know, your dad's ministry and your family's ministry. Uh, and then I want to go into again some of those lessons, mm-hmm. lessons learned, and, and how does that, how does that, how do you build that into mm-hmm. your philosophy of education and ministry and, and doing Christian right. education?
1: I think just as we close one important part of the puzzle is that that was not the end of the story. Right. You know, that God has an eternal purpose and and an ability to take tragedy and to apply it to uh, to growth and change and so mm-hmm. not only in my own life but watching the lives of that valley the Sang Valley where mm-hmm. they shot and killed uh, you know a number of believers God through a series of really unique ex- experiences and events, including a plane crash some six months later uh, and some some follow up work with missionaries brought people to the place where they said, "We'll hear what you have to say, send us your your teachers and mm-hmm. it opened the door to the gospel through a series of tragic situations, and yet you know that that defeat was not an eternal defeat; it mm-hmm. was certainly a loss some you know a painful loss. And yet, God used that to open the hearts of people to the gospel, yeah. and so there's more to the story. And, right. and that certainty that God's at work in all the circumstances doesn't grow out of just uh, you know empty optimism. It grows out of practical experience, and it's rooted in a conviction about who God is and who God intends to be to us personally. And then the impact that has on us corporately
0: yeah i love I love this line, not to steal your line, but I love it, and I probably will steal it at some point. God is a master at turning defeat into victory. Mm-hmm. I love that I love that um, Kurt, thanks for being here, and thanks for taking time out of your day to share this with us and and uh, I look forward to being able to sit down and 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 talk through you know another episode of this and 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 kind of you know pull together the lessons from from this incredible story and just from your decades of experience now in in education and how you bring those things uh, together.
1: Mm -hmm. It is interesting to look back and see God's hand at work in and through circumstances that we wouldn't necessarily have chosen for ourselves, and certainly don't control. Mm -hmm. And then you can look forward with that same confidence that God's at work and that God is in control.
0: Thank you. And thank you for listening. And uh, we'll be back uh, shortly with another episode uh, talking to Kurt Masters. Thanks for listening. It's always great to hear the wonderful stories, moments, and insights from members of the BA community. If you have an idea for a podcast episode, we want to hear it. Just visit Brentwoodacademy.com forward slash podcast to submit your episode idea today.